Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, it tells us about Jesus enduring the temptation of the devil for, for, for 40 days. And it says, And he returned in the spirit, the power of the spirit, unto Galilee. And there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. Now, I want you to notice verse 15. He taught in their synagogues. Now, this beginning of verse 16, he's going to tell us what he taught in his um, hometown of Nazareth. But the implication is that Jesus taught this wherever he went, at least the first time that he was there. When it says he taught in their synagogues, beginning in verse 16, it tells us what he taught. Not just in Nazareth, but everywhere that he went. And he came to Nazareth, verse 16, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went unto the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. So I want you to notice he's searching out the passages, the Old Testament passage that pertains to what he wants to get across now that he's been baptized by John in the Jordan River and the Holy Ghost descends on him in bodily shape as a dove. Immediately he went into the wilderness where he was tempted of the devil 40 days and he overcame his temptation by quoting and, and um, confessing the word, speaking the word. But verse, uh, six, uh, verse 17, again, there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance unto the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Notice verse 19, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. To preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, most of the time, at least I'm guilty of this. Uh, it, seems like, it seems to me like other people do the same thing or something similar. Most of the time we focus on the first part of what he said. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and to heal the brokenhearted and such. We usually focus on that and rightly so because Jesus is saying that he specifically he's saying that these scriptures which talk about the anointing of God to break the yoke of sickness and bondage and, and oppression and bring freedom to mankind it has been given unto him. But tonight I want to focus on the acceptable year of the Lord. We'll keep reading, finish up the story. It says in verse 20, and he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. That's King James English for Jesus saying, these verses are talking about me. Now, everybody knows who those verses are addressing as far as God's side of things is concerned. These are scriptures that pertain to the Messiah and only the Messiah and the, the, the power that God will give unto the Messiah to break the chains of the devil over whomever, over mankind, literally. So when Jesus says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears, he's saying, I'm anointed, just like these scriptures said the Messiah would, would be. I'm anointed to preach the gospel to the poor. I'm anointed to heal the brokenhearted. I'm anointed to preach deliverance, of cap of, of, uh, uh, deliverance from captivity to the blind. I'm I've been anointed 
to set at liberty them that are bruised. And I am anointed to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. To preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, he's clearly talking about the year of Jubilee. We don't know too much about the year of Jubilee because we didn't grow up in such a way where it had much bearing on us. Didn't have any bearing on us or any of the rest of the Gentile world. But I'm going to turn back to the Leviticus chapter 25 and show you what the Bible says about the year of Jubilee. We'll start in verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses in Mount Sinai, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, When you have come into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath unto the Lord. Six years thou shalt sow thy field, and six years thou shalt prune thy vineyard and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath for the Lord, for thou shalt neither sow thy field nor prune thy vineyard. That which groweth of his own accord of thy harvest, thou shalt not reap. He's still talking about the seventh year. Neither shall you gather the grapes of your vine undressed, for it is year of rest unto the land. And the Sabbath of the land shall be meat for you, for thee and for thy servant, and for thy maid and for thy hired servant, and for thy stranger that sojourneth with thee, and for thy cattle, and for the beasts that are in thy land, shall all the increase thereof be meat. In other words, he says, turn your animals loose and let them eat whatever is out there and whatever is grown in the seventh year. Verse 8, And thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee, seven times seven years, and the space of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto thee forty and nine years. Then shalt thou cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month in the day of atonement shall you make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. And you shall hallow the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land and to all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee. Again, this is the acceptable year of the Lord, the, uh, the 50th year. It shall be a jubilee unto you, and you shall return every man unto his possession, and you shall return every man unto his family. A jubilee shall thy... Fiftieth year be unto you. You shall not sow, neither reap that which groweth of itself in it, nor gather the grapes in it of thy vine undressed. For it is the jubilee, it shall be holy unto you. You shall eat the increase thereof out of the field. In the year of this jubilee, you shall return every man unto his possession. He says this twice. You shall return every man unto his possession. And if thou shalt sell anything unto thy neighbor or buyest aught of thy neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. According to the number of years after the jubilee, thou shalt buy of thy neighbor and according unto the number of years of the fruits, she shall sell unto thee. According to the multitude of years, thou shalt increase the price thereof and according to the fewness of years, thou shalt diminish the price of it. For according to the number of the years of the fruits does he sell unto thee. You shall not therefore oppress one another, but thou shalt fear thy God, for I am the Lord your God. Wherefore you shall do my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. You shall dwell in the land in safety. 
and the land shall yield her fruit, and you shall eat your fill and dwell therein in safety. And if you shall say, What shall we eat the seventh year? Behold, we shall not sow nor gather in our increase. Then I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year. And it shall bring forth fruit for three years. And you shall show, sow the eighth year and eat of the old fruit thereof until the ninth year. Until her fruits come in, you shall eat of the old store. Now, folks, I know this is, um, uh, it gets a little bit technical. It gets a little bit into the weeds about some of the things and some of the ways that he's talking about things. But just generally, the year of Jubilee is considered to be the acceptable year of the Lord. It's certainly what Isaiah is referring to when Jesus reads from um, the book of Isaiah, talking about these things are of himself or concerning himself. He's clearly identifying himself as the Messiah. And that's part of the reason why in in Nazareth they rejected what he had to say. They grew up with him, so they, in their thinking, how could the Messiah be somebody we know? So they rejected him, but because of his claim that those scriptures are pertaining to him, which is the equivalent of declaring himself to be the Messiah, they rejected him and tried to throw him off the, the cliff nearby the town, but he walked through the midst of them and escaped. So when Jesus talks about the anointing that has been given him in Luke chapter 4, he's talking about the power of God being made available, which of course came as a result of the Holy Ghost descending on him in bodily shape as a dove when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. He says that he's anointed, empowered, if you will, to bring about healing, victory, deliverance, and so forth for all the things that he he makes mention of. And then says... I'm anointed, just as anointed, just as empowered to preach or to proclaim the year of Jubilee. Now, we know the year of Jubilee. We just read in verse, uh, in chapter 25, that the year of Jubilee begins on the Day of Atonement. The 49th year, the, uh, uh, well, 49 and counting years, the following year is the 50th year. That's where the Jubilee begins. But notice that the... Um, the process in Leviticus chapter 25 for the announcement of the year of Jubilee. First, it's on the day of atonement. The day of atonement is the day when the, the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice is offered for all of the nation of Israel. You may remember that there are two goats or, or two rams that are used. One is, and uh, the high priest examines them both, determines them worthy to be sacrificed without spot or blemish or anything that would be impure in the animals. And then they draw lots for which one is going to take the part of the two tasks that are taken care of during the Day of Atonement. One is the scapegoat and the other is the sacrifice. Well, once lots are cast and the determination is made about which one is going to be which, the the, um, scapegoat, the Bible gives the high priest instruction to lay hands on the scapegoat and pronounce every curse known unto man to pronounce the curses and literally to lay them through the laying on of hands, to lay them or impart to this scapegoat all the sins of Israel, all the possible sins of Israel. So it becomes just this litany, big long script that the high priest goes through to identify and speak to each and every one of the sins that Israel 
needs to be and shall be redeemed from. Then the, the other goat is carried out. A strong man carries it out into the wilderness where the wrath of God falls on it out there. And that's the big mystery. Nobody knows what happens. They don't know if, the, if leaving the scapegoat out in the wilderness means he'll be eaten or torn apart by wild beasts, which is possible. Or if lightning comes down from heaven to, to do away with him once and for all. They don't know. It could be any number of ways but, uh, that it takes place. But everybody understood that the scapegoat was being carried away with their sins into the wilderness for God to pronounce or exact his judgment upon. The other animal is offered as a sacrifice. His blood is spilled in a very specific way, in a very specific manner. The blood is then splattered on the altar in a very specific way, in a very specific manner. The blood is carried by the high priest into the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the tabernacle or the temple, whichever one they're operating with at the time. And it's placed specifically on the mercy seat. The placement of that blood is proof, according to God's design, is proof that Israel's sins have been covered. Now, your sins and mine aren't covered. They're wiped away. And the reason for that is the blood of an animal wasn't worthy enough to do away with sin once and for all, but the blood of Jesus is. Then after the Day of Atonement activities are concluded, well, let me read this to you again rather than just refer to it because you may have gotten distracted along the way. Notice in verse 9 it says, Then thou shalt cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. In the Day of Atonement you shall make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. So the first thing that takes place is the offering of the sacrifice, the shedding of blood, the placement of that blood on the mercy seat to stand um, in Israel's stead before God. And then the trumpet sounds. Now the Bible talks a little bit about trumpets. Most of the things about trumpets that I'm aware of, the same may be true for you, is when it talks about certain things that take place during the tribulation period and the trumpets sound from heaven and so on and so forth. In every case, in every place that the Bible refers to a trumpet, it's talking about some news being proclaimed or heralded. When the trumpet blows, when the trumpet sounds, it is to let everybody know that because the Day of Atonement sacrifices have been fulfilled, here now in this 50th year, the year of rest, that trumpet identifies the good news of God's blessing. Then the year of Jubilee begins. Now, what does the year of Jubilee entail? I want you to notice the two phrases or the phrase that he uses twice. Verse verse 10, it says, it shall be a Jubilee unto you and you shall return every man unto his possession and you shall return every man unto his family. Verse 13 says, in the year of this Jubilee, you shall return every man unto his possession. Now, one thing I want you to see and want you to be aware of is that God is interested in establishing something that Jesus will fulfill for his family. Let me, let me explain further what I'm talking about. Everything that the Old Testament identified and required of Israel, Paul said was done as a type and a shadow, an example unto us. So every part of the Day of Atonement 
Every part of the, the work of the scapegoat, every part of the work of the sacrifice, the shedding of blood. Jesus fulfilled each and every part of that. He didn't leave one little part of it undone. He didn't fall short in any way whatsoever of completing and thereby fulfilling God's plan to bring man into a place of righteousness. But once he's made new, once we become new creatures in Christ Jesus, once the sacrifice was made concerning the Jubilee, then the trumpet sounds to announce to everybody that you've just entered into God's special time. You've just, been in, you've just entered in by the sounding of the trumpet, the heralding of the trumpet, and the work of God finished and completed by Jesus. Now you're into a place where every man is restored to his original possession. Well, if everything's done as a type and a shadow for us, the examples of the Old Testament to be fulfilled in Jesus, what is the trumpet heralding? What is the proclamation that's being made? Well, there are seven different names that God gives himself in the Old Testament. Seven different names that identify that which Jesus fulfilled. And so there are seven redemptive names. And in theological circles, that's what these names are considered to be. They're considered to be redemptive names because everybody agrees that God's intent and God's purpose in revealing himself through these seven names is to show us, instruct us, teach us that which Jesus would fulfill. So let me give you a quick rundown of the seven redemptive names of God. Jehovah Shammah. It means literally the Lord is here. And it talks about or refers to the presence of God that was denied us through sin in the law of sin and death, but now is revealed by the work of Jesus. Another one is Jehovah Shalom, which means the Lord our peace. It means that we have been restored to peace with God. Paul talks a lot about that to several of the churches in several different letters. He talks about how now that we have peace with God through the shed blood of Jesus, through the uniting quality of Jesus' blood to bring us back into the kingdom of heaven. Another name is Jehovah Raha. It means the Lord is my shepherd. You remember the redemptive types in the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He's talking about that which belongs to us during the new covenant. He's talking about that which God has instituted And Jesus has fulfilled to bring us back into his favor so that we lack no good thing in any way. Another one of the names that God identifies himself is Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. One of the things that that grabs my attention is when the Bible talks about the seventh year of rest. He identifies that the sixth year will produce three times the amount or three times the harvest to carry them through to give them enough for during the sixth year, during the seventh year when they're not working or cultivating their fields, and in the eighth year until the the, um, fruit of that new year comes in. Now stop and think about this for a minute. This is what God said he would do. It's what he did throughout all of Israel. He gave them the equivalent, the, uh, the equivalent of three years income in the sixth year. 
I think that speaks to the character and the nature of God. He didn't have to give you that much. He didn't have to provide that much for those people. But he did. Every 50 years. Well, really every seven years. But especially in the 50th year. The 50th year is a a special thing where every man's possessions are restored. Another name that Jesus uh, fulfilled that God gave himself is Jehovah Nisi, which, which means the Lord is our banner and speaks to our victory in his sacrifice and resurrection. Another one is Jehovah Sidkenu, and it's translated the Lord is our righteousness. We certainly know of that one. We're made new creatures. We're made righteous by the blood of Jesus the instant we ask Jesus to come into our heart. The last of the seven, but the first one that God uses in the, uh, the chronology of the Old Testament is Jehovah Rapha, I am the Lord that healeth thee. That happens in Exodus chapter 15 and is the first thing that the Bible tells us took place, the first event that the Bible identifies that took place after God delivered Egypt, uh, Israel from the bondage and the slavery of Egypt. He takes them, leads them through, by the, the work of Moses to a place where there's what the King James says, bitter water. It probably means something just more than ill-tasting water that doesn't taste good. It probably means it has a poisonous nature to it. And you remember that God told Moses to take a certain branch from a certain kind of tree and throw it in the water. And the Bible says that when he did that, the waters were made pure and clean. And then Jesus says, or I'm sorry, then God says to Moses to tell the people, I am Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that healeth thee. Now, that's the first one that he identifies himself as after the the captivity of Egypt is broken over his people. I am the Lord that healeth thee. These seven redemptive names, these seven different aspects or attributes, if you will, that God identifies about himself are the things that we lost when man fell in the Garden of Eden. So in in Leviticus chapter 25, in verses 9 and 13, I believe it is, The qualifications or the blessing of the year of Jubilee is you shall return every man unto his possession. That means you return Jesus having fulfilled these things means man is returned to his victory, the peace of God, the righteousness of God, the presence of God, and the healing power of God. I'm not sure if I named them all, but the the point is Jesus fulfilled every one of those characteristics and every one of those attributes. And that's why he created, that's why God created the year of Jubilee, so that we would see a picture, particularly the Jews, and they did see it, they saw it firsthand. We look at it through a historical filter, I guess, to see what God did for his people. But these are things that Jesus fulfilled when he went to the cross. These are the things, the possessions that were to be, that man was to be returned unto by the year of jubilee now back to luke chapter 14 or luke chapter 4 excuse me when jesus says the spirit of the lord is upon me because he's anointed me to do these things and to preach the acceptable year of the lord well we know what the acceptable year of the lord is it's the year of jubilee we know how it comes about it comes about on the 50th year 
The scapegoat is sent out of the wilderness with the curses of sin upon him, where the judgment of God falls in some manner, some way. We know that the animal is sacrificed and the blood is spilled and, and spread abroad in the places it's supposed to be, particularly and most importantly, where the blood is laid on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant to signify that a death has purified man. Now, Israel could only get uh, the benefit of one year's worth of sin coverage, if you will. But for Jesus, he entered in once and for all into the heavenly holy of holies to pay the price for us. So when Jesus says that Isaiah is speaking of him as the Messiah, and he's saying, I'm empowered to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, we know the Day of Atonement activities. That takes place first. And then the trumpet is sounded. As I said before, the trumpet is always used to proclaim something or to herald some good news. But the trumpet and the actions of the trumpet is fulfilled in what Jesus told us to do in preaching the gospel. See, the preaching of the gospel is announcing, is to proclaim the good news that Jesus has paid the price for everything that man lost in the fall. Everything. Everything. Now, we may mention a few minutes ago of the six year providing three years worth of income or three, year, three years worth of harvest. We're not too much of us, too, most of us aren't farmers, and so we don't talk about the, the harvest or the, the things the ground would produce for us, fruit of the vine and so forth. But it's the equivalent of God giving you three years salary on the sixth year and the 49th year. He didn't have to go that far. Folks, when the Bible tells us God is a God of abundance, I don't think we really believe what he intended to say when he was saying it. When the Holy Ghost talks about God being a God of abundance and meeting all your needs and providing you more than enough seed to the sower and bread to the eater and so forth, when the Bible talks about God's willingness to show himself strong, one of the things that we should use as a judge for that or as a measuring stick for that is God giving me three, month, uh, three years worth of salary so that we could let the land rest. Well, that part is fulfilled when it says, we which have believed do enter into rest. Paul wrote that to the, to the Jews knowing that they would understand, knowing that they knew what rest was in that same sense. They understood the rest of the Sabbath day, which means you could, weren't supposed to do any work. It wasn't supposed to be a ritualistic type thing like the Pharisees turned it into. But it was God saying, you don't have to trust your own abilities for provision. I'll provide for you. And the Sabbath day is that specifically. It's to show us that God can do for us when we're obeying his word and entering into his rest even better than we could do if we tried to do it ourselves. But the sixth year, and the 49th year. He's talking about three years worth of income. Do you realize that God has promised to bless you in those ways to such a degree that would stand for the equivalence of three years worth of income? Now, folks, I'm not here to tell you you need to start believing for your salary to triple every six years. That's not the point. I wouldn't discourage you from doing that 
But I'm not saying that's necessarily the way that it's supposed to be done or God's looking for us to do it. But I am here to tell you this. He's bigger than you and I think he is. His desire is to be better toward us than you and I think that he wants to be. There's something about that three years, that one year providing three years worth of benefit that shows us God's love in such a way that he's not afraid of being extravagant, extravagant, extravagant. I'll get it in a minute. He's not afraid of being big to us. He's not afraid of being good to us. It's part of what he said was a result of obedience to the word. So we've got the day of atonement that's fulfilled by Jesus and his resurrection. We've got the trumpet that heralds or proclaims that Jesus has died to pay the price for us, to to separate us from the law of sin and death that's in the world. And he's been raised from the dead to ensure the better covenant established upon better promises. After that, we're supposed to live in the land of abundance. We're supposed to live knowing that we've been returned to our original possessions. That's what Jesus said he was anointed to do. Well, folks, I'm here to proclaim. I'm here to announce that Jesus took every sickness and every disease upon himself. And with the shedding of his blood that was caused by the stripes in Herod's, in Pilate's court, excuse me, that was laid upon Jesus, the price was paid once and for all. I think so often times, and, and I'm, I may be the world's worst at this, because I approach everything from a teacher's standpoint, a teaching standpoint, because that's the gift that I have. That's what God has given me to do. But I think we need to stop sometimes and realize it's not just teaching that the Bible commands. See, when the trumpet was heralded, the trumpet was blown, the good news was heralded that the day of Jubilee has begun, they didn't stop to teach anybody about those things. They just simply proclaimed it. So I think it's good for us not just to teach and try to persuade, but to announce as the trumpet sounds to usher in the day of Jubilee, to announce that Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses. There's not one sickness, big or small. There's not one trace of one symptom or any circumstance or any condition that Jesus has not already paid for. He has set you and me free from the bondage of sickness and disease. We are free by the work of Jesus. We're not going to be free. It's not a matter of if we believe enough or believe long enough or believe strong enough. The fact is the work of Jesus has been completed. Jesus sets you free from sickness and disease, and he did the same thing for me. Every part, every piece, every little thing. Now, the year of Jubilee was a 12-month period. The year of Jubilee for us is a whole age. It's the church age. We've been delivered. We've been restored back to our original possessions for the entirety of time that the church is here on the earth. After Jesus comes back for us and we go to heaven, things change drastically for us. It's certainly going to be a better circumstance, a better situation for us there than it is here. But while we're here, we are living in or intended 
God's intent is for us to live in the year of Jubilee. Completely provided for, completely victorious, completely surrounded and saturated in the peace of God. Completely healed of every sickness and every disease. That's not a matter of talking somebody into, folks. That's an announcement of the way it is. You are free from sickness and disease. You may have evidence of sickness in your body. You may be standing against certain things. But that in no way diminishes or takes away from the fact, the truth, that Jesus paid the price for you and me. That price is paid. One of the things that um, really made an impact, started making an impact with me in some of the things that I'm believing for, is when I began speaking to my body and telling my body what the Bible says about healing. And I don't know why it is. It's, um, well, it's just a function of human nature. It has to be. But so often, I did this. I got caught up in this for longer than I want to admit. But so often, rather than speaking to the mountain, speaking to the problem, speaking to the sickness that attacks our body, we talk to God about the sickness. Now, we may be talking to God about right things concerning sickness and disease. But there's a big difference between talking talking to God saying, Lord, I know Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sickness and talking to your body and telling it it's free. There's a big difference there. And Jesus said in Mark chapter 11, verse 23, that we're supposed to talk to the mountain, not talk to God about the mountain. And it's a trap that we can fall in and the devil will help you get it, get there. Because how can prayer, which is defined as communication with God, How can talking to God about anything be a bad thing? But Jesus talked about speaking to the mountain. Concerning sickness and disease, it means speaking to sickness. It means speaking to your body about being well rather than being sick. I began to see some marked improvements, not just in the area of healing, but in other areas as well, because the same principle of faith works the same in every area. Same principle that applies to faith concerning healing applies to faith concerning finances, lack, and so forth. I think a lot of times we're talking to God about our financial situation, and there's no need to. He already knows where you're at. He knows where your finances are at. He knows what your financial situation is. But when you talk to your finances, when you talk to your body and talk to your finances about what the Bible says we've been restored unto, that takes takes on a whole new meaning. It steps up a whole new level. And folks, if your faith will work on little things, your faith will work on big things. There's something that the Lord drew my attention to, well, a good several years ago. One of the things that he drew to my attention is all the time that the devil is whispering in my ear or screaming in my ear, trying to say that my faith wasn't working about something that was big. I'd be having other victories of faith in things that just weren't as, big, uh, weren't as big, weren't as pressing, weren't as critical, certainly. But my faith was working fine on those things. Well, the devil always tries to tell you that you're out of... The devil always tries to tell you you're disqualified in some way or another from the blessings of God. 
since faith works by love, he'll try to tell you you're not in love and that's what's causing things to delay. The Bible says we're to cast our cares over on the Lord and worry and anxiety will hinder our faith from working. So the devil will tell you you're doing that too. But if that were the case, we wouldn't have any areas in our life where faith was working. None. And I think it's certainly a good thing to always examine ourselves to make sure that we don't slide over into worrying or being anxious about things because it's easy to do. It's easy to get your eyes off the things of the word and get your eyes on the circumstances. And so there needs to be a constant check to make sure that we're anxiety-free, worry-free, and to make sure that we're walking in love. But once those two things are done, then the reason that you may be having success in smaller areas and not necessarily in bigger areas is just a function of letting letting the seed of God's word take root. Jesus said the whole kingdom of God is like planting seed in the ground. Well, some things reap quicker harvest than other things. Some things grow faster. I was looking at putting some fruit trees in my yard a couple of years ago. And there was a certain type of fruit that this tree just looked magnificent. I, I mean, it was, it looked like this is the tree that I want. And so I started talking to the guy about it, and he knew a lot more about these things than I did. So I was asking questions. I said, what about that tree? I said, man, that looks good. I'd like to have that one in my yard. He said, well, that's fine. He said, we'd be glad to sell it to you, but I want to warn you up front, it's not going to produce for seven years. Well, I'm not willing to wait seven years on something producing. But there are other trees and other plants and other, other things that produce a lot quicker than that. Now, does the one that produces quicker mean that it's working and the tree that takes a long time to produce fruit, that one's not working? The same life that it derives from the soil and the water and the sunshine is working in both cases, just not at the same pace. But you don't have to plant the the long-lasting or the longer-bearing fruit tree in a different way than you do the others. There's no difference in the way you plant. There's no difference in the way you feed the tree. There's no difference in the way you water the tree. It just takes some things longer to produce. It just takes some things longer to produce. Well, I realized that the devil was trying to trip me up in some of those areas. But I began telling him the things that my faith was doing. I began showing him how God honored his word and the things that I was speaking, other things that I was speaking in my body about. And it brought me such a sense of peace I can't describe. I got to the point where I was asking the Lord or began to ask the Lord. I said, all right, now, Lord, I've got a couple of days that I can spend just totally focused on you and your plan for me. And so I told him, I I wasn't even praying about this yet. I was just telling the Lord what my plans were to start praying about something. I said, Lord, I'm going to ask you when this time comes and when I can devote time to it, I'm going to ask you if there's anything in my life that I need to get rid of or something I need to change to take hold of the healing that you said belongs to us, belongs to me. I'm going to ask you about that. Folks, I didn't even get the question out of my mouth. Where on the inside of me, the Holy Ghost said very strongly, very forcefully, 
have faith in God. He quoted Mark eleven twenty two, have faith in God. And that was it. That was it, and that was all there was to it, and I knew that was all there was to it. And so I said, okay, well, Lord, what do I do now with this, all, all this free time that I've blocked out to spend with you to find the answer? I mean, it came in less than a second, have faith in God. I think it's so easy for us. I think we all have a tendency. But I think it's so easy for us to get caught up in the possibility that maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe I'm not doing something I need to do. Maybe there's something I need to adjust in, uh, in some way, somehow. And that unknown, that uncertainty, is certainly something the devil can use to convince you, or at least try to convince you, that things aren't working. But that's never what it means. It's never what it means. Have faith in God means you believe what God said because he said it. Have faith, having faith in God means that you stand strong on what his word says, not because you see any evidence of success in your body, not because you see any change. Change does come. And I'm, I have begun to see a lot of change in a lot of areas. There's a lot of things about my life and my situation that I can do now that I couldn't do a couple of years ago. And, of course, the devil just wants to tell you that's coincidence. But isn't it a coincidence in the highest order that these things are happening as a result of speaking the word? I don't have any of these coincidences in other areas. But the ones that I'm speaking the word and holding fast to the promise of healing, the declaration of what Jesus has done for us, those are things that I count precious. So we are to preach the gospel. We are to preach the good news, to proclaim the good news that Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses, to proclaim the good news that Jesus died not only for the remission of sins, the wiping away of sins, and to bring you into righteousness, the righteousness that comes as a result of God being your father and entering into the family of God. There's a proclamation. There's an announcing that brings strength. When I began doing that, I saw things change by leaps and bounds. I don't, uh, well, I don't want to share too much about my own situation, but I will tell you this. The tremor in my right hand and my right foot is about the only symptom that's left. And whereas it's the most notable, it's the one that's the most embarrassing, I do everything I can to try to hide it. It's the one that everybody sees, including me. But to be perfectly honest with you, it's the least debilitating and damaging of any of the symptoms that I've experienced. And those are all but gone. And I haven't done anything except believe God's word. Some things just take time. And before the end of the year, this one will be gone. Because Jesus didn't die on the cross and shed his blood for us to get a little better. The Bible does not say by his stripes we shall be medicated. 
So I'm not looking for medicine to make a difference. I'm looking for complete restoration because of what Jesus did. This is our year of Jubilee. This is the year, and I don't mean 12-month period. I mean the church age, while we're still here on the earth before Jesus comes back for us. This is our time to rest in the truth of his word. This is the time for us to proclaim that we've been restored, every man to our own possession. Healing, victory, peace, the presence of God, every one of the seven redemptive names. You have been restored by the work of Jesus, by the shedding of his blood and the raising from the dead of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. You have been delivered from every evil work. It's already done. Already done. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you that your word is true. Thank you, Father, that we don't have to rely on what we see or feel. Because we have the truth of your word that identifies what Jesus has done for us and who we are in him. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of proclaiming. And we do proclaim over ourselves that we, our bodies, are free from sickness and disease. Body, we command you to line up with the word of God. Sickness, we call you gone in Jesus' name. We thank you, Father, that the truth of your word and our simple adherence to it acceptance of it we thank you that that's all that's necessary for as we speak your word we plant the seed of faith into the good ground that you've made us to be through righteousness we thank you father that we are free from sickness and disease we thank you father that we are well by faith satan The word says that our bodies and our spirits have been paid for by the blood of Jesus. They belong to God. So we command you in Jesus' name to cease in your maneuvers, stop in your attacks. We declare that our bodies belong to the Lord. And God doesn't make sick bodies. We declare we're free. We declare we're healed. We declare that every fiber of our being is saturated with the life of God. And it drives out every sickness, every disease, every symptom, every trace of every symptom. In the name of Jesus. Now we rest in you, Lord. We rest in you. We believe and therefore we speak. And we thank you. With the eye of faith, we thank you for the restoration that we see ourselves enter into. We love you, Father. And Jesus, we thank you so much for holding steady to finish the work of God, to pay the price for us so that we could be free in every respect. We thank you that your word accomplishes what it was sent to do. And it is restoring us to divine health in Jesus' precious name. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all that you've done. We thank you that the victory is ours.
The victory of healing is ours. The victory of provision is ours. The victory is ours because Jesus won it for us. So we're more than conquerors. And since you are for us, since you are on our side, we will not fear what man will do unto us. We will not fear what the devil tries to do. We've been made free. Thank you, Father, that your word is true. Amen. 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 Well, say it with me. The Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever. Say this after me. I proclaim that through the sacrifice of Jesus, my body is well. Body, I call you well in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if we hurry, we can get some of the candy before the kids take it all. Thank you so much for being with us. We love you guys.